Hi guys, I'm Sean McCambridge. For over 20 years, I've been inquisitive, learning and experimenting with different ways to leverage our greatest asset, our minds, to work for us rather than against us. Join me as I engage with these inspirational guests to provide you knowledge and insights to help you achieve more. This show is sponsored by Stellar Recruitment and inspired by a company purpose and why, which is inspiring growth and changing lives. Thanks very much for tuning in. Hey guys, this is another bonus episode as part of our recent Stellar X live event we had in Brisbane, uh, inspirational event. We had James Lachlan as one of our speakers. He's a, a leadership and high performance coach and keynote speaker, uh, working with some amazing individuals across the globe. He's going to talk to us around how vision precedes victory. Great talk, referencing some really key pieces of information, inspirational stuff. I'm really confident you'll enjoy. Thanks so much for tuning in. Top of the morning to you. I hope you're all well. Yes, I'm from across the Tasman. But clearly I'm not from across the Tasman. So I didn't bring my translator with me today, unfortunately. So I hope you all can pick up the Irish brogue and translate it into English. Still working on my English. Jonah... Thank you so much uh, for what you just delivered. It was phenomenal. As in the back, taking notes, just incredible. I just want to say a huge thank you for gifting me this moment to share with you. Your time is so precious. And I know that the last few years have been challenging and full on. And some of us have thrived in the last few years. Some of us have really struggled. And today, I want to take a moment to talk about vision. I'm just going to pull this back a bit. I like to sit at times. So, videre, videre is the Latin word to see. Now, most of us in the audience here have the gift of sight, and we use it from the moment we wake to the moment we sleep. Some of us actually use it when our eyes are closed, and that is a true skill that high performers utilize, whether that's in sport, business, philanthropy, relationship life, Vision is the old French word to see in one's imagination. Now, I firmly believe that what you can hold in your head, you can hold in your hand. Just for a moment, I want you to think about what you're sitting on right now. That seat, that cushion, the back on it. That didn't just appear here at this beautiful powerhouse. That was once an image in someone's mind. And they brought that to life. See those shoes that are engulfing your feet right now? Again, they were once a vision in someone's mind brought to life. Look, we've all got ideas and visions and dreams. You know, for some of us, it's Everest or Mount Cook in New Zealand or maybe the hinterland if you want to start small and slow. But whatever your Everest is, it sits in here to start with. And the clearer that vision is, the easier it is to move towards it, and the easier it is to inspire others to attach personal meaning to that vision and join you on that journey. So some of you are here today who run companies, organizations, teams. Some of you maybe run small companies, others running very large companies. But the clearer your vision is, the easier it is to inspire others to join you. Let's talk about having a family. Many of us dream of having a family. 
I remember my late 20s shifting from, I never want kids to travel the world and have fun to, oh my God, I want to be a dad. And in my mind's eye, I could picture this little baby and kicking a soccer ball. And if his mom let him, maybe even a rugby ball. Moved towards that vision. And I took it for granted that it would all just unfold. But like so many others, life has a way of throwing ambushes at you. You know, a few months in, and we go for a scan, and there's no, no heartbeat. My vision had been destroyed. And for a moment, I gave up. I was hopeless. This really positive, passionate, effervescent Irishman, you know, who just runs through life, yet nothing can stop me to the, wow, what's life all about? And for me, realigning that vision and going, you know, it's worth fighting for. Some of us might find that in our companies. Sometimes we stop fighting for our vision. Sometimes we forget what the damn vision is. But for me, it was getting clear on, no, I'm going to be a dad. And I've had setbacks before. Let's give it a crack. I'm proud to say I've got a beautiful little six-year-old boy called Finn. It keeps me on my toes. But that was started as a vision. Now, for others, it could be a financial metric. It could be revenue increase. It could be company size, reducing churn of staff and clients. But it all starts up here, and it starts with getting clear. Now, for me, it's a very simple model. I like to keep things simple. Mental images, they trigger feelings, and those feelings trigger behaviors or actions. So if you're uh, imagining going to base camp at Everest, how are you going to feel about that? Well, you might feel a bit excited, maybe even scared, maybe inspired. What's that going to do? It's going to trigger you to go and take action and maybe get some hiking boots, maybe book some flights to Nepal, maybe hire Nim's die to be your Sherpa to take you to the top. It's going to inspire action, but it comes back to one thing. That is the vision. I have no desire to go to Everest, and so I don't have the hiking boots, and I don't have the flights to Nepal. But I've got other visions, as do you. So just for a moment, I'd love you to just take a second, get comfortable in your chair, sit nice and straight, relax your shoulders. I'd like you to close your eyes. Take a deep, long breath in and hold that breath. Continue to hold it. Let that pressure build. Now let it roll out slowly. Another long, deep breath in. Hold it. And let it roll out. Continue to keep your eyes closed. I want you to picture in your mind's eye somebody you love. Could be a parent, could be a grandparent, could be a significant other, might even be a child. I want you to picture them. I want you to see their beautiful face in your mind's eye. I want you to look at their hair. What color is their hair? What complexion is their skin? I need to take a moment and look deep into their eyes. This loved one that you have all the time in the world for. 
that you think about, that you would do anything for? What color are their eyes? What do you see in their eyes? Do you see joy? I want you to picture a beautiful smile coming across their face. You haven't seen them perhaps in a few years, a few months, and you don't know when the next time is that you will get to see them. How does that make you feel? Sad? Excited? Connected? I want you to reach forward in your mind's eye and, and hold them. Embrace them. Let's open our eyes, folks. Thank you for taking the time to do that. We started to engage emotional visualization. Now, that's easy to do with a loved one. Hands up who felt some sort of feeling or emotion throughout that process. Anybody? Lots of us. Amazing. Right. Hands up who would like to connect with that loved one today and send a text or actually give them a hug, or maybe after this say, hey, I love you. Anybody inspired to do that? Lots of us? Okay, good. It's as simple as that. Let's keep it simple. So mental image triggers feelings, which then activate behaviors. Without the mental image, we're hitting in the dark. So today I'm going to share some stories. I believe the best way for me to learn and for me to connect with others is through story. Recently, I connected with a beautiful human called Roman Schulier. Roman was a lawyer for all of his adult life with Marchenko partners up until the 24th of February. On the 24th of February, he had to change careers real quick because his country was invaded. He was standing on the streets on the 24th of February watching artillery and tanks go down the street, and he was standing with his friends, family, young children, and he's seen men heading off to protect their country. And at that point, he said, I've never held a gun. I've never had any military training, but I know what I have to do. On the 25th of February, he stepped down as a lawyer and stepped up into the Ukrainian Defense Force. Chatting to him was very interesting. He was very clear on his vision. He was monomaniacal on his vision. I said, tell me about life before 24th of February. He went, no, I'm not going there. I said, well, tell me about life after, after the war's over. He went, no, not going there. I said, tell me where your mind is. He says, there's only one thing I'm focused on, James, and that is winning the war. When I go to bed at night, I visualize the war ending. He's after that happens, I don't care what happens. He's I certainly won't be a lawyer again. I've had some time to think about what life is all about, and I'm not going back there. He says, but I do this for my kids. I do this for my partner. I do this for my, my parents, my community. He says, nothing else matters. And he's sitting in this bunker. We're sitting on Zoom, and you can hear the chaos in the background. But every time we come back to one thing, his vision. His vision was what? Freedom. Personal freedom. And everything that he does is focused around that. He has this vision of freedom, which inspires what feelings? Feelings of hope. Feelings of joy. Feelings of excitement, but also feelings of passion. Feelings of anger. He's inspired to defend his country, and he made it very certain that freedom will be theirs. Because every Ukrainian will fight for that. Now, imagine in a, at a company level, if we had people so passionate about the outcome because it made a difference to the people in the company, the people that we serve, imagine what would be possible. 
It's when we see companies like Apple do what they do and the growth that they experience. Roman's a fine example of this very simple mental image, feeling, behavior. We do it every day. Each one of you woke up with some vision of what today was going to be about. And that inspired a feeling of either excitement, dread, or, oh my goodness, how can I catch up on my emails when I take four hours out of my day? <laughs> right? We've all been there. But knowing that simple formula allows you to go back to this. Vision precedes victory, time and time again. Now, I get the good fortune to work with professional sports teams, organizations, corporates, individuals. And I like to keep it very simple. To me, high performance is this. High performance is performing above the standard norms over the long term whilst maintaining positive well-being and relationships. Robin Williams, what an actor. Jeez, most of our childhoods were filled with Robin Williams. He killed himself. How sad, how devastating, how horrific. To me, high performers sometimes set too much of a high expectation on themselves and get way out of whack. They don't know what their priorities are. When you look at high performers, often they're susceptible to anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. Now, coming from New Zealand, we win, or arguably you'd say we lose in this area. Highest teenage suicide rate in the OECD. I worked at a private school for 10 years, and we had 10 kids that I knew of in that school that killed themselves. We have the highest child mortality rates in the OECD and the highest domestic violence, just across the ditch, in a developed country. So high performance, we have a susceptibility to losing sight of balance. High performance is performing above the standard norms over the long term, whilst maintaining positive relations and well-being. So when I go and work with a company, that's the first thing, or an organization, a sports team I look at, is how can we keep this balanced whilst getting monomaniacal, monomaniacally focused on the outcome? So the first pillar for me of any, any organization, any high-performing team, is this, vision. Starts with vision. Without a vision, people perish. I can't take credit for that quote. That came from the good book. But you think about it, all the great resignation, James, the amount of phone calls and emails I've had from people going, oh my God, I can't keep my staff. And they're going elsewhere for money. It's usually Kiwis complaining about their staff coming to Australia to get better money and better opportunities. They're not leaving for better money. People, there's a threshold with money. And after X amount of dollars, it doesn't really matter how much we're going to offer you. People thrive on making a difference, on feeling significant, on feeling valued. The first thing that someone does when you're in front of them, the first thing they ask is, does this person value me? Or am I a bit of a pain? To me, get the old, envision, right? It starts with actually taking a moment to get clear on who are we? Why do we do what we do? The All Blacks, arguably one of the greatest rugby teams on the planet. I'm saying this in the wrong room, aren't I? <laughs> so... At a point in history, they were almost unbeatable. And then something changed. So they started to go, why are we not as consistent in this high-performance field that we're in? They started to realize that the makeup of their team changed. Right? They had more Pacific Islanders. They had more Maori. 
They had more people who were descended from Scotland and Ireland. It, it changed. So their rituals and their mission had to evolve too. The Hakka was very Maori focused. So all of a sudden, what did they do? They went to their Samoan and Tongan players and went, hey, what does it mean to be Samoan and Tongan? Tell us about your culture. Tell us about your music. Tell us about the rituals you have. The Irish players, Scottish players, same thing. What did they do? Embraced everyone's origin story and rejigged the haka, rejigged their rituals so that everyone could attach personal meaning to the vision. Your vision might be amazing and you dream about it and you tell your partner about it. It means nothing to the person that you go in that's working in your company or on your team until they get to attach their personal meaning to it. If everyone can attach personal meaning to your vision, you're onto something special. I was chatting with uh, Naz Beheshti. Naz got a, a psychology degree um, in LA. Next day, she bumped into this individual and he said, you're amazing, I want you to be my EA. She went, I just got a psychology degree and no. And her mom took her aside and went, do you know who that is? She went, no, I'm not an EA. That's Steve Jobs. She went, who? Steve Jobs, Apple. She went, oh, okay. So she went home and thought about it, consulted with her mom and dad, like, hey, this is an interesting opportunity. I want to get into the psychology field, but this Steve Jobs guy, EA? She went and became Steve Jobs, EA. Why did she do that? Not because she was going to develop her psychology skills, but because she was so inspired by the vision of what they were doing. She did a bit of research around where they were headed, the difference they were trying to make to the planet. She thought, I can attach personal meaning to that vision. I can be a part of that, and I can help him. Next stepping stone, clarify, painting a vivid picture. People talk about purpose. Simon Sinek, the, the, I would arguably say the, the legend of purpose. We talk about it in our boardrooms. We talk about it in our sheds with the rugby teams, but it's so cliche. What is purpose? When you look at a leader's greatest responsibility, what, what is it? I chat to people, you know, what, what, what is leadership? What should a leader do? Well, there, there's actually one thing that a leader is responsible for, and what is that? The well-being of their people, of their tribe, of their organization. That is it. Jerome Kano, one of New Zealand's top athletes, was asked by an interviewer, what's your purpose? And he laughed. He said, what do you mean? He said, what, what's your purpose? I don't have a purpose. He says, do you mean for me? Yeah, 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 for you. He says, family first, team first. He's like, whatever I do, I just want to contribute to the greater good for the well-being of my people, my team. But in our culture, we're almost expected to have a personal purpose. I need to find my purpose. People spend hundreds of thousands of dollars finding their purpose. But when you do it for the greater good of your team, your organization, your stakeholders, I mean, what greater purpose is there? Connect. Hands up who's ever achieved anything great in their life without the help of anybody. They did it all by themselves. I've yet to meet someone who can put their hand up. I had someone put their hand up and go, I'm a world boxing champion. I went, that's amazing. He said, I did it all by myself. I said, oh, that's awesome. When did you start boxing? Oh, it's probably about nine. I said, how did you get to the boxing training? Oh, dad drove me. I was like, okay. And when you got there, was it just a big old bag and you just give it a good old hiding? Uh, no, there's like trainers. Oh, okay. So you work with a trainer. How long do you work with them for? Oh, like my whole career. I was like, okay. So did you truly do it by yourself? No. 
we do things through others and with others. When we try to be that stoic leader, like it's all on me, generally what happens? We fail. Generally, we see the great resignation. People want to work with people. People want to feel valued. Last but not least, where we spend most of the time, the strategy, the delivery. I would say arguably down here, most people are spending about 5% of their time. And up here, probably 80% of their time. If we flip reversed it and spent 80% of our time on the vision, making it compelling, reinforcing it over and over and over, this stuff at the top becomes fun and easy. People become autonomous. They get to attach their personal meaning. Don't get caught in being busy. Busy being busy ain't fun for any of us. How was your week? Oh, I'm so busy. Hey, when can we catch up? Oh, I don't know. I'm so busy. Is that what life's about, being busy? To me, that means you don't have any priorities. Get your priorities clear. And your, your actions, they reflect your priorities. I had a client recently say to me on a one-to-one -one call, I'm just so busy, James. I haven't met that target. Like the, the company just, it's just not headed in the right direction. I said, you're so busy. I'm on the phone chatting to him. Get your screen time up. Get your old iPhone out and get the screen time up. He said, what do you mean? I said, get it up. What's the number one app you use? And he went, <clears throat> um, I, I think my phone's froze. <laughs> I'm like, really? Instagram was the number one thing. I said, okay. How many minutes were you on Instagram last week? He went, um, it's actually in, in hours. I said, how many hours were you on Instagram? Eight hours and 41 minutes. I said, oh. And... How many clients did you get from Instagram? He went, I've never had one in the 10 years in business. What are you doing on Instagram? He says, I don't know, I just spend time scrolling. He's like, are you busy? Or are you a busy idiot? So getting clear on what your priorities are starts with vision. So what was my conversation with him? Let's come back to vision. So we're gonna, gonna come back to this slide in a wee minute. But for a moment, I just wanna share with you what my vision was. And I start as a five-year-old in Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland, two very different places to grow up in. Two very beautiful places with lots of beautiful people in them. I grew up in a working class town just north of Belfast. And as a five-year-old, I used to sit on the front step in this little housing estate and look up and see these big jets taking off from Belfast International Airport. And all I wanted at five years old was to be on one of those planes and to me, they all went to New York. I didn't realize they were going to Edinburgh and London, Gatwick and Paris, but they all went to New York. And I was going to be on that plane one day as five, at five, five years old. Why did I want to be on there? Why was my vision about getting out of Northern Ireland? Well, Northern Ireland is very divisive. Protestants and Catholics, they fight the bit out over nothing. In fact, they've lost sight of what they fight over. Now, I grew up in a house with a mum and a dad that were opposite religions. That was fun. Made for interesting dinnertime conversations. But we witnessed things as kids that were unusual. I remember going down the high street and seeing three or four teenage boys on wheelchairs. Jeez, oh, what's happened here? It's been a, been a rough rugby game this weekend. I said, hey, dad, what's going on? You went, they've been kneecapped. What's a kneecap? He says, you know, those things, they've been shot off. What for? Did they have a disease in them? He says, they stepped out of line, and the local paramilitaries took care of them. Not the police and the judicial system, but local terrorists. I was like, geez, 
So as a five-year-old, you're thinking, this is, I want to get away far away from this. Every July, the roads would get blocked by masked men. And if you try to drive through, they'd take your car and burn it. We'd be driving home from Granny's house, three kids in the back, mum and dad in the front, down a wee country lane, and there's the British army, randomly in a little lane, pointing their guns at my dad, flashlights in his face, looking underneath the car for incendiary devices, looking in the boot. Very unusual place to grow up. Now, at about nine years old, I was finding myself in the headmaster's office. Mr. Pollock was his name, and boy, oh boy, was he scary. He had to be. Half of the parents of the kids that he was teaching were involved in paramilitary activity in this little town. He had to be tough. But I ended up in his office all too often, and this one last time he said, look, boy, you've got an option, drumsticks or detention. I laughed. You're punking me, right? What do you mean drumsticks or detention? Clearly I've got to go to detention. He says, you take these drumsticks, you turn up every week for the rest of the term, and we'll call it, call it a deal. Okay. So I turned up and this old man, like my granddad's age, was there, taught me drums. And in my mind at nine years old, again, this vision, I was like, next Ringo Starr. <laughs> the girls are going to love it. I'm going to get my first girlfriend because I'm going to be the coolest drummer in town. So I'm drumming and getting all this praise from my headmaster. We're best mates now, and he's bringing me into the office and telling me how good it's going. This is really cool. And then one afternoon, we're in assembly. And doesn't he walk in with this crazy bloody instrument, making all this noise, and a skirt on? I says, what in hell is he doing? And he has this kilt and bagpipes. And he's marching in, playing, and all the kids are like, this is so cool. And he goes, guys, this is a bagpipe, and I'm the pipe major of a pipe band. And we've been short on drummers. And so I started a drumming program here at the school. And James, James, just stand up. So I sheepishly stand up and all the girls and boys are looking at me. James is our next member to join the band. He's nearly learned all the tunes. I thought, God, what have I got myself into? But I'll tell you what that did. That gave me purpose. That gave me a vision of working towards something that was meaningful. It kept me out of his office for all the wrong reasons. And by the age of 13, I was fortunate enough to win the World Solo Drumming Championship. And I don't say that to impress you, but to impress upon you that that moment made me realize that my dream could come true. That vision of escaping Northern Ireland to something better, maybe I could do that through this drumming thing. The following year, I retained that world title. And then the exciting stuff started to unfold. Phone call from Vancouver, Canada. I was like, that's far away from Ireland. That sounds great. I said, hi, it's the Simon Fraser University here. We've got a pipe band. I was like, oh, I love pipe bands. And by this stage, I was like, you know, mid-teens, and I was getting a bit more positive attention from the ladies around my kilt, so it was not so bad, not so uncool. So I jumped on a plane to Vancouver. They had a couch for me. I was like, I can sleep on a couch for a whole summer. And I got to meet all these amazing Canadians and this different outlook on life and no religious conflict. In fact, it was so diverse, incredibly diverse. Canada is a beautiful place. I was fortunate enough to win the world championships with them. The day after that, a phone call came in from New Zealand. And I was sitting in Northern Ireland, and I says, Dad, which, is that near Sid Sydney, or is that the other side of Australia? Like, which state is it? He says, I don't know. I says, Jonah Lumu, right? The, he said, yeah, yeah, the all black guy. That's it. That's New Zealand. I didn't care where it was. I just said, how far away from Northern Ireland is that? And I got the map out. It's like 12,000 miles. <laughs> I can't get any further away. This is really what my vision's all about. So it's a, it's a private school there. And I said to my dad, Dad, the last couple of years at high school, I went to a very regular public school. I hated it. I don't like school. 
how the hell am I going to fit in at a private school? And teaching, of all things. My teachers at public school are going to laugh and be like, he's going to a school to teach. What on earth? But those last couple of years in Northern Ireland, I was, and I heard Jonah talking about this earlier, around who you hang out with, who you surround yourself with. I was surrounding myself with some very unsavory characters. My mom and dad were going through a divorce. I used that as an opportunity to go to the pub with Uncle Brian. And I was just hanging out with all the wrong people. It was going the wrong direction. And when you hang out with unsavory people in a small town in Northern Ireland, you know that you're heading in one direction. So this phone call from New Zealand was a lifesaver. I went to New Zealand and I said, look, there's a condition. I'd like an upgrade to a bet. I'd like enough tokens that buy me more than just beer. And I want residency. I want some certainty that I can bring this vision to life. And they said, okay, well, we've got one condition. No New Zealand team has ever won the world championships. We want to rewrite history. It's like, cool, I'll commit to that. I can't promise you that, but I can commit to it. And I think I know how we can do it. But I want my residency. 2013, the St. Andrews College, they lifted the world title. And I'd done my bit. And tick. And guess what? My vision came to life. Shortly thereafter, I got my citizenship. I'm proud to be a Kiwi. I might use it as a backdoor into Australia to retire to, <laughs> as many Kiwis do. And it was just, it reinforced that having that vision at five years old of freeing myself, getting out there and traveling, I mean, it was so important that I kept coming back to that. And I had different vehicles, strategies along the way. But I stayed really congruent with, I don't want to be here. Now, I love my family and it's a beautiful country, but I'd never go back there to live. So I want to bring it back to home to you guys, here to Brisbane for a moment. So I've got a dear friend and he's retired now. But Greg Creed, he grew up here in Brisbane. And he went to school, primary school, high school, even went to university here. And his first job out of uni was Unilever. And he got to take over Dove, the global brand. And then he got CMO for Taco Bell up in America. And then he became CEO of Taco Bell. And this is where it gets interesting. This is where it comes back to vision. When he started as CEO, he said, there's one thing I want to focus on. And they said, no, 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 we've got like 12 things we need to focus on as a company. Like, we've got all these things that we've got to tick the box. He says, yeah, screw that. He says, I've got an obsession metric, and we're going to focus on that for six months. And globally, it's the only thing we're going to focus on. I said, you're, going to, you're going to get sacked. The board is going to kick you out of here, send you back to Australia. He says, I don't care. We're going to do it. What was that metric? What was his vision? A full taco. He assured me, right? A full taco. It's Taco Bell, right? He said, our tacos are like 63% full on average. Not good enough. People come to eat tacos, let's give them a, a full taco. And they're, they're, you can't be kidding. We're going to spend six months measuring the fullness of our taco. What about all these other things that are important? He said, trust me. So they did that. They got, after six months, they reevaluated, And the taco was up in the 80 percentile on average. He was delighted. But what happens with a rising tide? Lifts all boats. And so when they started to look at all the other metrics, they're like, holy hell. Things are all lifting because we had this one really singular focus to lift. That one metric, lift that, everything else comes with it. I want you to think for a moment, two men heading south into the Southern Ocean. It's the early 1900s. They're both trying to achieve the unachievable. It's never been attained by any human before. They're led by two leaders, Two very different leaders. 
Roald Amundsen coming down on the Fram from Norway. He was an Arctic explorer, had spent a decade traveling in the Arctic Circle. He brought down with him a team of specialists, people who knew how to look after dogs, care for dogs, discipline dogs. And it's pretty important when you're in Antarctica. He brought down people who knew how to craft metal and wood. Very important when you've got equipment that's got to get through terrible conditions. And on the way down, get a big old map with his vision, with X marks the spot. There's where we're headed. That's all that matters. We're going to get to the South Pole. And he let everybody in the team attach their personal meaning, what it meant to them, their families, their communities, their legacy. He let them say, well, actually, we probably can't do that. We should probably do this based on their expertise. He respected them. He valued them. He let them add their two cents. He said, when we get there, only one thing that we all got to commit to, and that's a 15-mile march. Every day, good, bad, or indifferent with the weather, we're going to march for 15 miles until we get the job done. Captain Scott, Robert Falcon Scott, came down on the Terra Nova. Different leader. Another good leader, but different approach. I've got this. Don't worry. I'm the leader. I'll take responsibility. Just listen to me. Follow me. I got it. Just have fun. Let's go down. We'll get our job done when we get there. Crap weather, hunker down. Crap economy, let's hunker down and not take any risks. On the other hand, crap economy, let's do a land grab. Two different approaches. Robert Falcon Scott was like, no, we're going to, when things get bad, we just get, we get down and hide. And when the weather's good, we're going to do 100 miles. And guess what? They got to the South Pole. Captain Scott got to the South Pole. And what did he see when he got there? That beautiful Norwegian flag. It beat them by like 34 days. And they were on the way back to celebrate. Pop the champers. Now, what happened within 24 hours? One of Captain Scott's men said, in the blizzard, see you later. And just walked. Killed himself. The whole team perished on the ice. Vision precedes victory. Roald Amundsen had a vision. He shared that vision. He allowed others to attach meaning. He had a team. He was very inclusive. And then they got focused on how do we deliver. Now just to wrap up, there's one man that I look up to. When I hear the word leader, I think of this man. Nelson Mandela was one of the world's finest examples of knowing what a vision looked like how to share it with others and inspire others. This was his vision. Just that, that picture says it all. Because sports represented so much for South Africa, still does. Hey, represents so much for Australia too. And this photo of the first black president shaking hands with the rugby World Cup champion, I mean, this meant so much. But let's go back a little bit. When Nelson was young, he went to school. He wasn't called Nelson. He had an African name, a Hosa name. But his English school teacher said, you're Nelson. And so it stuck. Now, Nelson was very smart, very, lots of acuity, lots of interest. He went to Johannesburg and became the first black lawyer to open a law firm in Johannesburg. And he wanted to fight for one thing. What was that? Equality justice for his people. Apartheid, he'd had enough of that. 
So he was one of the first members of the ANC, the African National Congress. Let's do it. Let's do it through political means, through conversation. But he realized really quickly that he was getting nowhere. So he was also one of the founders of the MK, the militant arm of the ANC. And he traveled the world meeting with guerrillas who were participating in guerrilla warfare to learn how to make devices and how to fight and do what, what needed to be done to make a difference. And he went back and he was plotting what the African government seen as treason. He was a criminal, he was a terrorist, and he went to the Rivonia trials, he was arrested, and he spent three hours representing himself. He used that as a moment to talk about what his vision was going to be. And he said, I am prepared to die for this. Now, we all know the story. Nelson spent 27 years of his life. Jeez, in New Zealand, we had six-week lockdown, and we were complaining and I just kept thinking, 27 years, and you believe you're fighting for something that's true and worthy. 27 years, and 18 of those years was on Robben Island, a deserted island off the coast of Cape Town, freezing cold in winter, lying on a floor with just a blanket. But during that time, he never forgot about his vision. His jailers, Afrikaners, he taught them English in return for daily newspaper. He could keep up with the times. He was able to get pen and paper in there and write the long walk and hide it in the garden and get it out on the ship and send it to London so it could be printed illegally. Why? To move towards his vision. Picture this. Your jailers tell you to grab a shovel and you're not going to the quarry of the lime today. Dig a hole. Yep, keep digging. Dig a bit more here, dig a bit more there. And as Nelson's looking down, what does he see? He sees the shape of a grave. And they say, step in. He steps in, lie down, close your eyes. And he thought, this is it. And what did one of the jailers proceed to do? Urinate on him. He was humiliated, he was tortured. But through it all, he kept focused on one thing. What was that? His vision. And what did he get around him? An incredible team of people. He stayed focused getting incredible people around him in the jail, outside the jail. He used his influence, his composure, so that when he got to later years and negotiated his freedom, he was in a position to actually influence, to unleash that strategy. And as we all know, he became the first democratically elected black president of South Africa. Simply incredible. And here's what I want you to remember. One person at his trial, said he needs to be hung. We need to get rid of him. Treason's unacceptable. What did he do to that person upon being elected? At the inauguration, he invited him to sit with him beside him. The jailers, some of whom he became great friends with, others who didn't, he invited them to the luncheon of the inauguration. Not to rub it in their face, but to say, hey, I forgive you, and this is my vision. I'm here to the end. And Vision really truly does precede victory. No matter where you're headed, being clear about where you're headed is so damn important. Nelson Mandela said, vision without action is just a dream. Action without vision just passes the time. But vision combined with action can change the world. So my parting question to each of you amazing humans today is how clear are you on your vision. Thank you.
That was awesome, James. Uh, now time for some questions. I'll start. You spent, I think, last week or the week before, you spent, I think, the best part of the week with some uh, impressive people. Uh, one of those people uh, was, um, was uh, John Key, the former uh, New Zealand uh, Prime Minister, one of the better Prime Ministers we've had. Uh, he come from a broken family, uh, state housing, uh, and then built a career as a, an investment banker, become a multimillionaire, and then become Prime Minister. Um, what, what have you learned from him, I guess, through your association with him, and, and what role has Vision played in his journey? Yeah, you know, Sir John Key is just an incredible human. I've had the good fortune to work with him a few times and bring him along to some of my leadership events, and I always challenge him and question him on, like, how did you get there? Why did you get there? What did it even mean to you? But vision was everything. So he said, look, when I was seven years old, I was sitting with my mum. And I want you to think of his mum. His mum was an Austrian Jew who had to flee Austria, moved to England. Most of her family, in fact, I think she was the only one in her family. Most of her family went to the concentration camps and never came out. She went to England. She met, um, she was only 16. She met her new husband. They traveled to New Zealand. He had an addiction. This is John's father, um, to alcohol, and um, they had three kids. And one night, John's mum, uh, who came from a lot of wealth in Austria, to now living in New Zealand with next to nothing, she decided in the middle of the night she would take John and two sisters and flee from Auckland down to the, the South Island of Christchurch. Uh, a few months later, John's dad died in his 50s, a heart attack. And his mum, they, 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 you know, they, they lived in a social housing in Christchurch, and his mum worked so hard, instilled really strong values in him, and he said to her at the dinner table at seven, Mum, I'm going to make a million dollars. I'm going to be a millionaire. And she's sitting with nothing, and she went, yeah, you are. I believe it. He says, and after I've done that, this is at seven years old, I'm going to be the Prime Minister of New Zealand. And she went, you know what? I know you will be. And she never got to see him be the prime minister. But as we know, he went uh, through the financial sector, did very well, made a bit more than a million. And then came to New Zealand and in his 40s, followed through and became one of New Zealand's arguably greatest prime ministers. So for him, the idea of vision is critically important. He sits on the board of ANZ and Palo Alto, all these other companies. And for, for him, it's about what's your vision? Do your people know your vision? Are they excited by your vision? It keeps coming back to being clear about where you're headed. So yeah, in answer to your question, he's very very clear on vision, and that really drove him towards success. I'm interested in, uh, and particularly companies and uh, maybe small businesses, you, if you have a vision, how much do you have to involve your people in deciding on that vision? Or should it be your vision and you, know, you bring people along? Uh, and I know in large companies there's a lot of talk about, well, it's important to, you know, try to work out your vision or your purpose to engage your people uh, in that process. But if you're the leader of that organisation, you're pretty clear about where you want to take it. How much does it need to be yours or how much do you need to engage others in deciding on that vision? Mm, great question. Look, I think vision and leadership, it's a, it's a top-down thing. It starts at the top. I was recently working with a company uh, who are growing uh, in New Zealand and they're looking to move to the UK and talking about their vision. And their vision's 
there, but it's maybe a bit murky. They know the color, but they don't know the shade yet. And they're like, okay, we're going to get, you know, 40 of the team members in the room. We'll get clear in this vision. Like, why would you do such a thing? It's going to be confusion, chaos. People get pissed off that you didn't adopt what they wanted you to adopt. It starts top down. And to me, a great company vision is one person, two, maybe three, a very small, tight group of individuals. If it can be one, I think that's even better because then it's a very clear vision. And then at that point, people that want to be on the bus, well, they can attach their personal meaning. So if I was living in the States and someone said, hey, James, there's an opportunity to work uh, with Elon Musk, count me in, I'll drop everything, I'll do it. 100% because I could attach a lot of, of personal meaning to that. I wouldn't need to adjust his meaning or adjust his vision. I just want to be a part of it. So I think small amount of people, preferably one or two, define the vision. Let everyone attach their meaning. Those who don't want to, there's another bus they can join. What's your uh, thought process or, or how do you achieve a vision? I mean, I've heard a lot recently of people being micro-ambitious and breaking it down and going for the short-term goal in front of them instead of the, the clear vision in the, in the distance. It's really interesting. So I think COVID has played an interesting part in people's ability to, to look at longer-term vision. There's a company in the North Island of New Zealand that were looking at their 500-year plan. <laughs> yeah, I joke you not. Now, this was a Maori iwi, and they were looking at, like, what does this mean for our whakapapa, you know, our ancestors and the people around us? So it totally depends on where you're headed, who's headed there with you. But, for example, if in your situation or with the company you're with, what are you looking at? Are you guys looking at two years, five years, 10 years? What's your vision currently? Uh, in real life example? Yeah. Yeah, for me, it's 12 months. Mm -hmm. 12 months on 12 months. Great. And if we were to fast forward three years, so we'll 3x that, and we were to be sitting here having the conversation, what might it look like? I'll have to let you know in five years. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's, it's worth exploring. Uh, Self-evaluation, to me, is the seed of self-mastery, and it's the ability to go, okay, what are my values? What drives me? What is it that gives me meaning? And if I can extrapolate that out over a number of years, where am I going to be at? Because then that will determine what you do in the next 12 months. It doesn't mean you can't pivot. Because, you know, I, I, I usually sit five years out personally, and then I'll reverse engineer that back. But the five-year plan that I made two years ago is different from the five-year plan I have now. It's, it, it's adjusted. So I think take some time. And, and stretch it out and see what might, might come. It might inspire you to take bigger swings. Each year, each of those 12 months, you might take bigger swings if you can think three, five years ahead. Thank you. Um, I'd just be a bit interested about what a vision looks like. Is it, is it a purpose statement or is it, are you, I get a sense that you're actually painting a picture, um, a story of what, say, an organisation might look like at the end of that 3X or 10-year period or... Because I hear a lot about vision, it's just like a, like a line, like a naff, like a really cool thing. It's a vision statement, but it, it does, you know, people connect to it. But can you just describe or give a bit more detail of what vision looks like practically? Yeah, absolutely. So everyone has their own version of vision. So when I, when I get down and, and work book with companies, uh, the first thing we look at is vision. Now, the first question is, in the ideal world, what would your vision look like, succinctly? And 90% of people will write it out. 10% will draw a picture. And so I, for me, I think it's, it's about having something that doesn't scare you, but challenges you, inspires you. Martin Luther King, he had a dream. Now, that, that was a very clear vision. Mandela, 
very clear vision. Elon Musk, very clear vision, interplanetary transport and life. So I think it needs to be short, succinct, and inspiring. And, you know, we look at Microsoft, who's to get a, I think, a personal computer on every desk on the planet. Uh, for Apple, it's to think different. Keeping it simple, but being able to visualize an outcome. So for me, that photo of Nelson Mandela and the captain, that, that's a vision. That's a, whoa, how the hell am I going to get out of prison, become the first black president, and then unite a, unite a nation? To me, he was, was just very monomaniacally clear on that vision. So that the simpler you can make it, the easier it is for people to attach their meaning. I was chatting with Sir Steve Hansen last week, and uh, he was the former head coach of the All Blacks. And I said, look, you guys were good. You won a World Cup. You were clearly good. But then you wanted to win another one. How the hell do you set a new vision? Let's just win another World Cup. He says, no. I talked about it with a small number of other leaders in the, the team. And we decided that we want to be the undisputable, strongest rugby side of all time. That's what we wanted to do, to be as our vision. The World Cup win, we just threw that out the window. We wanted to be undisputable, strongest rugby, rugby team of all time. And everyone around agreed. It was a simple vision, but it was really inspiring. Everyone could attach their personal meaning to what that meant and what ended up happening. Another rugby World Cup win. That was just a byproduct of setting a very simple yet compelling vision. One last one, James. You've talked a lot about company visions and, and those sorts of things. What tips do you have for individuals creating their own vision? Yeah, it may not be at a, a grand level like Nelson Mandela, but at a personal level, what are your tips for creating uh, a vision for yourself personally? Yeah, well, look, you've either got a personal growth plan or you don't. It's one or the other. So you're either growing or decaying. Like, as humans, we don't just flatline, otherwise we're dead. You're either growing in areas with your health, you're getting healthier, stronger, fitter, or you're not. So to me, it's actually have a personal growth plan. Uh, for me, that looks like career, fulfillment, family, health, wealth. You get to decide what your buckets are, your pillars are, contribution, growth, whatever you, you want to focus on. But actually having a plan, to me, that would put you probably in the 2% of the planet, maybe even 0.1%. Most people don't have a personal growth plan. So ask yourself, first of all, where am I headed? What does growth look like and how can I measure? Awesome. Huge round of applause for James. Thanks so much for tuning in. It means the world to me. Uh, if you got something of value out of the podcast, I'd love you to pay it forward and share it with anyone that might benefit. Thanks again for tuning in.